This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, I'm going to keep today's intro real short because this is going to be a long episode. The short version of it is that my good friend Nick Steiner and I have been diving real deep into the topic of landscape hydrology and water cycle restoration, both on our own properties and through our work with clients and farmers all around Europe. And in the process, we've become complete nerds about this topic and all the incredible potential that working with water systems can have for the ecology and the quality of life for wherever it is applied appropriately. So today, Nick and I are going to lay it all out and summarize some of the main learnings that we've gathered through courses, research, personal experience, and case studies from our work. We'll be looking at hydrological work through small home-scale actions, all the way through massive regional and country-level policy change and transformation. So instead of explaining all of this twice, let's just jump right in. Hey, Nick, welcome back to the show. Good to talk to you, buddy. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, it's been a great time since the last time we spoke, and really <laughs> looking forward to this one. Yeah, uh, the last time we spoke was yesterday, <laughs> except for the podcast we've done in the past. Uh, you and I are constantly working together, so this is nothing new. But it's really fun to get together today because we're talking about some of our biggest passion projects and the work that we do both with farmers, with private clients, with communities, and it all revolves around water. Can you tell us about why we've decided to do this episode and why it's so important right now? Absolutely. Yeah, it just it came up a lot over the last weeks, but also months. Generally, the, the discussion, especially here in Europe, um, there's so much interest about water because what we're seeing so much is either there's drought, uh, which was which was a very big concern this year for farmers, uh, but also for, for individuals and especially especially portugal but also spain um and now it's it kind of reversed so we now heard some reports of floods even in lisbon so in portugal it's it's really getting getting strong and also after the last podcast episode we did but also through the work you did with zach wise and lorenzo um yeah just a lot of people are interested in water and it's such a crucial part I guess the first time you don't have enough water or you have too much water and it's flooding your house, you realize that it's something to really care about. And it's one of the most important topics that will come up in the coming years. So the better we can prepare and the earlier we can do it, uh, the better for our future. Yeah, from my side, I mean, with working with the community, with climate farmers and farmers all over Europe, this is something that's coming up in the conversations and the chats all the time after the heat waves, the record-breaking hot summer that we've had, the, the extension of the drought, especially here on the western side of the Mediterranean, but also all the way up through northern Europe as well, reaching record temperatures, 
long dry spells that they're just not used to and how this is having an effect on farm businesses and, you know, also the clients that I have in this region, you know, who have, you know, maybe not landscapes geared towards production, but the things that they have planted, the things that they're cultivating, even if it's for more an, an experience-based landscape, is suffering as well. And just like you were saying, it's not only these high temperatures and the extension of the drought, but oftentimes, especially when looked at over a longer period of time, you're getting the same amount of rainfall, but it's coming in these very short bursts, which often lead to flooding and the extremes on both sides are happening and people are looking for answers. And so within that, why are we focusing on water? It seems like this is something that's just happening as a side effect of climate change. Is there anything that we can really do about it? Yeah, I feel like the the biggest let's say, misconception that people have is that all the water-related problems are just there because of climate change. But I feel like you can also look at it from the other side, that because our water cycles are so broken and because we've interfered so much in these natural balancing effects, that that is also a big issue of why we see these events and why things are getting more extreme. And I think the, the beauty of this is that if we if we get all our problems related to carbon in the atmosphere, if we get everything solved today, it might still take a very long time before we really see the results on the ground. And that's the beautiful part of working with water. If you do it now, you can see the results after one rain and you will definitely see them after one rainy season. And also if we work on this scale on restoring water cycles, if we do it on a large enough scale, we can also then see global effects of um, of that water. and. I mean, there is a sentence uh, that you can plant the rain, and that's absolutely true. So when you get your, your water cycle figured out, when you integrate plants into your landscape, because they give off so much water through their leaves, through transpiration, you can actually contribute massively to rain. So I think this is a crucial element that people kind of neglect. Um, so on the one side, we need to work with water because um, something is changing in the weather patterns, uh, in the climatic uh, patterns. We're getting these more extreme events that you spoke about. But also we can buffer them through proper management of our land, through proper management of water. And yeah, I guess that's the beauty of it. We can tackle it as a mitigation, but we can also tackle it as a cause and to to get things in order again. Yeah, for sure. And I really like what you said there at the beginning, you know, it, the good side of this growth in awareness around the issues of climate change and the man-made effects that are that are causing it is that people are talking about this more. They're becoming aware of it in the patterns that they're seeing in their own weather events, especially over a longer period of time. But I'm also seeing the other side of it being that anything that seems extreme or anomalous gets automatically blamed on climate change. And it's a really good way to not take any responsibility for the power and the influence that uh, that all of us have, even on a small scale, to influence the, the moderation of these extreme events and to do our part to restore the health of these ecosystems, to start to change the trajectory that they're on from one that is constantly degrading to one that's starting to regenerate. And, you know, working with water is one of the 
the simplest, easiest things you can do, relatively speaking to many other interventions that are more costly or require more intense technology, that can have a really outsized effect in moderating these extremes, in starting to change the trajectory that the landscapes that we manage are on. And, you know, the, the water cycle itself, of course, has a massive effect on climate, uh, well, not climate change, but the, the moderation of the heat cycles all across this planet, much more so than the smaller percentage of gases within the atmosphere. And I'm not going to go into the deep science of this, but basically, if anybody understands the thermodynamics of uh, refrigeration, the way that when a liquid or an element changes phases from solid to liquid to gas, there's a huge exchange of energy potential. And usually this comes in the form of heat. So as you go from a liquid to a gas, like in the evaporation of seawater or surface water anywhere on, on Earth, there is a huge absorption of heat from the atmosphere that is held until it's once again condensed in the upper atmosphere and falls as rain. And especially in a small area, like the patterns that happen up in the upper strata of the atmosphere, these are not things that we're actively, especially not on a small scale, able to influence. But the humidity felt on the ground and how water is held in a place, either underground or creating humid microclimates within small areas, is definitely within our control and can really change the ground feel of these extreme temperatures to three, four degrees Celsius or whatever that is in Fahrenheit. I can't believe I've forgotten that metric. Um, but it's meaningful. You can really feel the difference. And this is something that people really have the opportunity to do something about. And how have you been seeing this play out in some of the interactions that you've had with the people you're talking with, with the things that you've seen on the news? Is this getting the attention that it deserves and the, the recognition for the powerful effect that it can have? I think it's it's not quite where it should be, but it's definitely getting more recognition. Um, and I think it's it's on the one side, it's kind of alarming that we have increasing floods, uh, but also droughts and fires. So that is a big issue. But because these issues arise, people kind of wake up to the idea of, okay, maybe we should do something about water. And what I found the most interesting in all this is, I mean, people are anywhere on the spectrum when it comes to the whole climate change debate and like what exactly is causing it what exactly are the mechanisms there so sometimes it's difficult to agree with everyone on on what is causing what and what's happening but what i found to be a common denominator often is that water related events are definitely getting more extreme like many people agree to this aspect like either we have too much rain or too little um, it's very extreme and that's why i'm also such a big fan of working with water and kind of working with landscapes in a way that we can buffer these extremes because if you believe in man-made climate change or not like you have an interest in having a landscape that can buffer these extremes and it's relevant for everyone and when you get to a point in a discussion where you ask like hey what's what's important for you um so far everyone has agreed that having enough water and having enough clean water to drink is certainly a relevant aspect and i think that's that's what we need to focus on uh, because we can do that in, in any kind of aspect and I guess farmers, because we're working so much with them, they are kind of an early indicator of what's happening. And so 
through the farmers that we're working with all over Europe, but also through some connection globally, we can see like, oh, there's potential problems that are getting worse with harvests. Uh, we also see that in the food, food supply chains. And especially looking forward, what many food corporations are also realizing like, hey, um, we need food, we need to produce food, it needs to come from somewhere. And if the basis of our food production is breaking away, that's a very big issue and we need to start um, intervening. So there's also a lot of support coming from that angle, which is very, very interesting. Uh, we also have issues with, with transportation. Like it's really going through, through all kinds of levels of society. And the beautiful part is that we don't need to sit there and wait for, for governments or someone else to fix it. Like we can really start having an effect and we can start with the land that we have a direct effect on and we can, we can really tackle this issue um, on different levels. So, and I think that would be kind of interesting because as we're both uh, part of a fantastic cause with Zach Wise, where a big focus is also on influencing the water cycles in, in different areas, also from a policy level and not just what you can do with your hands. Maybe it would be nice from your side to, to see since you had the big pleasure of meeting him in person uh, just a while back. So how, how do you see this spe specifically from a level of how can we do this policy-wide, but also on different scales? Yeah, I learned a lot already, both from meeting him in person in that course in Italy and through the course online of the inspiring stories from from him and from other people all around the world about how they mobilized communities and started to work often against regulatory bodies, governments, uh, local councils and such, which were unaware of or even actively antagonistic towards the positive work that was being done on the ground by people who depended on these water supplies and were actively working to, to change the situation that they were in. And, you know, it's a matter of perseverance and tenacity. And as we are always talking about all of this stuff, of course, is context specific. The regulations, the governing bodies are going to be different in each place. There's no prescription of saying, you know, ah, just get everybody together and lobby your mayor or your local governor and you know, eventually these things will start to change. Everyone's going to have to start to leverage their unique abilities and skill sets to figure out how they can contribute to this. And, you know, I have some communicative ability, but I feel like I work better with my hands and on the ground. And so maybe it'll fall to another person to leverage things at a government level around me. And that, that wouldn't be the place where I would be most effective. And maybe someone is an engineer or has a role in civic planning that could help to influence the way that those policies or those regulations are either made or enforced or not enforced. And goodness knows, all of these projects look for funding, look for other different types of support. Not all of it is money related, but always that's a tool that's very versatile and people can use to great effect. There, there's so many opportunities to work in this whether you're inspired to be the person on the ground actually making water retention features or planting trees or not, or you prefer to, you know, influence things at a different level. I think there's there's opportunities for for creativity here more than anything and for people to use whatever it is that inspires them that they derive joy from as a tool to to move these projects along. And, you know, it, it kind of comes back to these bigger pictures, right? So we can do meaningful work at a garden or a landscape or even a farm scale, but eventually these things are going to have to start to shift at a regional, uh, country, uh, uh, continental scale 
for us to see the type of difference in climate in the trajectory that you know the the <laughs> the moderations of of the heating and cooling systems of our planet are going to need to get back on track and stay within these levels that we know are, are easier and more habitable from the ways that we've become accustomed to them. And do you see a lot of potential in, in getting this done by mobilizing lots of small projects? Or do you feel like the best way to go is to start to work at policy and governmental levels first? What I've seen in the in the past, but also now happening, is that often you need some kind of pioneering projects to show what is possible. So this often happens on a rather small scale. Um, but they need to be there to kind of, on the one side, I think, inspire other people that this is possible, but also then get them to a point of like, ah, okay, well, actually, let's do some research, see see how this is developing. Okay, it seems to work. So people who are a bit, um, let's say, risk averse can then say, okay, maybe this is actually a good idea and we can do that and we can replicate it. Um, and I think that is the the main thing what we need to be doing. We need in all regions around the world, we need to have these projects who are kind of saying, okay, let's pioneer this in this area. Let's see what has grown and what has worked in another area. Let's build examples here. And that's from from all the discussions we had with other people who've been involved in this work much longer than than we have they say like this is what really drives change because generally policies don't change up front they usually get adjusted after things are done or after things are demonstrated to work and i think that's what we need to be doing on on small scales we need to implement um kind of the changes that are needed to buffer these water events and to build kind of uh, water and climate resilient landscapes, but also farms. And as soon as that is happening, it can then go to a larger scale. And I guess speaking about scale, one of the most impressive is the work of Rajendra Singh um, in yeah. India, where it was possible to regenerate vast landscapes, provide water kind of access or bring water back for a million people, uh, revive rivers, raise up the water table. Like all these things are possible. And I guess that's that's the beautiful part. We need to share these examples. We need to show people it is possible. We need to show how to do it. And then we need to educate the people on really get this done on the ground. So that's that's how I kind of see it. Like inspiration is the first level, but then you also need to know how to do it right. Um, and then that's the that's the big aspect. When we have the people who want to do it, we have the people who know how to do it, then the financing and legal aspect need to come. So that is that is definitely also still a big issue. Uh, but it's also something that will be possible as as these things get more extreme. I'm quite certain that there will be more funding and also more opportunities to get these uh, projects going. And I guess to make it a bit more concrete, it would probably be interesting for some of the listeners to go a bit into, okay, but what what can we actually do? Like, this is all a bit abstract. This is on a large scale. But for me at home, like... What, what's something that uh, that I could start doing? And I guess we both have experimented a lot with with different things. So maybe you go a bit into that to to give people some more concrete examples of what this could look like. Yeah, I feel like a good place to start would be at the home, because regardless of your access to land or not, everybody is working with the same basic utilities. Uh, you know, you, most people have running water in their house. Uh, how's yours going, by the way, Nick? <laughs> well um yeah for those who don't know we have one water tank uh one big one and it's connected to the roof 
So we're completely off grid. So yeah, what what I can capture during the rainy season is what I'll have for the rest of the year. So it's a kind of inside joke, Oliver. And me have a lot <laughs> because he's just making fun of me not having water. No, you've actually done incredible amount of of work in in making the most out of every drop that lands on your space. I mean, you've got not a huge amount of of roof area and not a massive catchment, but you've been able to stretch that out significantly through the long dry spells of the Canary Islands. And that's probably a good place to start. I mean, other than just saving water through smart appliances, not using it wastefully within the home, uh, perhaps looking into options to switch to dry toilets or low flow flushes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the equivalent of lowering your carbon footprint it's good you shouldn't be wasteful with it but it's kind of uninspiring and there's a lot of other things that you can do and you have demonstrated on your site and you know i've worked with a lot of natural buildings that i've designed and built in the past as as my old specialty was of looking at the potential for water harvesting and capture from roof spaces from runoff areas like roads and pavements on the property and seeing the multiple options that people have of capturing that and storing it. You've got cisterns like you've got, uh, which helps to keep it relatively clean, depending on the filtration, the, the pre-entrance to those, those cisterns that you have in place, and perhaps even putting a downspout filter before it gets to the point of use. There's a lot of different ways to do that passively. You can do that with uh, DIY infrastructure, pretty easy to find the materials. You can make your own activated carbon for, for filtration. Uh, we could go on and on about all the different ways of capturing things in the cisterns, but also, of course, storing it underground, storing it in the soil is, is there's a huge potential there. And then it just opens up more questions about what kind of soil do you have? What amount of space, what the runoff coefficient of your soil is, what kind of plants and landscape are you trying to maintain? So why don't we go into that? Because you're really the expert on how to make the most of small amounts of water and still have a lush garden and ecosystem. Yeah, I think one of the, the best places for people to start is look at, okay, where is water used no matter what? So we always think about, okay, how can we capture rainwater? Um, but that might not be there all the time, but there is certainly some kind of water use uh, that is happening on a, on a daily basis or at least on a very regular basis. And, and that's also what, what I try to start with here. Um, but basically look at, okay, we somehow eat every day and we clean the dishes. Um, so there's definitely some water being used on a daily basis. The issue was um, I moved onto the property, that water was just going down the drain, which seemed like a bit of a waste. So that was one of the first things is luckily the kitchen wall was facing the outside. Um, so it just took me a bit of sweat and a lot of drilling uh, until I had a hole in the wall uh, to get that pipe through and then direct it into the garden um, where then the next step was like, okay, but, but then what kind of filtration system or how do you continue from there? And also throughout the years, like we've built all different kinds of systems with different complexity. But I came to realize that usually what I'm going for now is what's the simplest system that still works well enough, because the more parts you have, the more parts can potentially fail. Um, and they make it much more complex and often more expensive. And um, I've become a really big fan of mulch basins. So basically, you just create a kind of a 
larger area that you dig out, you fill it with mulch or some organic matter, some, some woody parts, uh, also some plants, and then you start planting around it or even in it. Um, and yeah, I've just been doing that here and it works fantastic. So through that, I'm just creating this one tiny oasis, uh, so to say, where I know all year there will be water. Other parts of the garden won't get irrigation. Uh, the other part of water was definitely shower water. Um, it's also being used uh, also here since we don't have enough electricity yet for a water boiler. Um, the best way to heat water was with the sun. So I built a little contraption to solar heat the water. And obviously that was outside. So now also the shower is going into another part of the garden. Um, and there I was a bit worried about, you know, even though we only use biodegradable soaps and all that, I was still worried that that might not have the best effect on microbial life in the soil. So the worm compost that we had, I connected that through a pipe that the outflow of the worm compost also goes into that area to kind of counteract the, the remains of the, of the soap that might be there. And that's basically how I counteracted that. And we have the best growth of, uh, of any of the areas of the garden. And yeah, it's, it's working fantastically. I'm, I'm really happy. The growth there of the trees is incredible. Um, I'm really, really happy about that. And yeah, you what, what are like some things you've experienced on some of your trees, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. One of them came up to came up to four meters. It's it's really fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, what are your kind of approaches when it comes to this? Well, I really like what you were talking about with gray water systems. I'm a big fan of those. Uh, my thought in working with water at a residential scale is really carefully asking the question of how many times you can use water as a resource before it leaves your site or becomes unaccessible, right? And gray water, depending on where it's coming from, well, I, first of all, let's talk about that classification, right? So there's potable water, which is clean for drinking. It's been inspected or tested to make sure that it's safe, free from pathogens or dangerous chemicals, for the most part. <laughs> and then gray water usually is talking about things or, or water that is leaving from, from appliances that leave it lightly used or very, very lightly soiled. So it's not really a risk. We're talking about sinks, showers for the most part, uh, your laundry water, depending on the, the type of detergents that you're using. And also depending on what kind of pre-filtration you have, sometimes this can also include your kitchen sink. Now, if you are you know, using things that are heavily soiled, if you've got some heavy detergents that you're putting down the drain there, or if there's a lot of oils and greases that are going down there, Oftentimes that'll be classified as black water and should be treated a little differently. Now, what you were saying with the, the mulch basins is a really good way to put any kind of soiled matter, whether it's, you know, some of the oil or the dead skin from your body, let's say you're from the shower, the, the simple soaps, if you're using something fairly ecological or at least non-toxic, can be eaten up by or absorbed by the organic matter and the microbiology that's in a, a mulch basin like that. It's one of the easiest ways to go. And you made a really good point there about the simplest system being the best way to start. You can always add complexity, but if your system is dependent on a complex interworking with a lot of moving parts, there's so much more to go wrong. And unless you have a really good understanding and knowledge of how to fix things and, and have a good inventory of replacement parts if something clogs or gets broken, it's it can be complicated. And if that's the only way that you're treating water, if you don't have a way to send it to a septic tank or to a sewer, it can get very messy very fast. And I've seen these things go wrong. So it's, it's always good to start small. Um, 
And then it's just a matter of figuring out all the different ways that you can use this lightly soiled water. And then, I mean, from here, we could get into biological ways of treating black water or sewage, things that are more heavily soiled, but that's kind of a whole nother, uh, we should do a whole episode on that sometime. It's, it's really interesting. There's a ton of potential for it, but it's definitely not where I would advise people going to DIY projects right off the bat. You can definitely cut your teeth on gray water with uh, much less risk. But then, so gray water can be used, I mean, you can use it as the flush water for your toilet so that it's already been used. You're not using potable water, which goodness knows there's no reason to use drinking water to flush a toilet. Um, the easiest and most obvious one, just like you were talking about, is using it in a garden. Um, usually it's not going to be contaminated too much. I mean, obviously you should be aware of the types of detergents or anything that could go down that drain and like bleach and some heavy detergent salts are usually the biggest culprits in these types of systems that can really cause die-off or, or start to contaminate your ground. But most of the rest of the stuff is pretty pretty decent. And you know, if, if you're unsure about a product, there's a lot of resources online to check to see if, if it's safe for a gray water system. And within that, it, it is easiest to use for irrigation or passive irrigation like you're talking about. It's one of the best ways to make sure that you reuse it, that you sink it into the soil. And oftentimes it'll stay there depending on the type of soil that you have, it, you know, depending on, on how much absorb, uh, absorptive qualities that it has and how much organic matter there is, you can hold on to it very, very late into a dry season, especially if you've got, you know, windbreaks and shade cover and, and living roots in the grounds. It'll often even continue to cycle as it evaporates off, creates little humid microclimates and falls back on as dew in, in the early parts of the day. So, I mean, that's some of the, the easiest ones that I know for reuse. Do you have any other ideas about how to make the most of residential or maybe even light industrial water? Yeah, I feel the, the natural filtration is is one of the biggest things. So on the, on the one side, um, yeah, we we have uh, three little helpers uh, called worms. Uh, they're doing they're doing a really great great job because if you have some you know leftovers from a kitchen sink, like some of that, um, that might clog up a system that might turn into a problem. Um, but generally, worms move into those mulch basins quite quickly, and they are really happy about the additional kind of food and nutrients. So just setting the system up, it usually just takes a little while, and they come in. Um, and eat quite a bit of it to kind of also keep it keep it clean and also build some channels where water can infiltrate better. So so that's what I've seen. What works really well. Um, you could then also go more into the kind of systems where you work more with with gravel and um, and other plants. Then so more like water loving plants, um, kind of like cattails, like all all those um, all those kind of plants. Um, however, with those systems, it's really important to be a bit careful what kind of water goes into it uh, because also it's some some painful um, experimentation we had in the past where we also worked with gravel and these kind of plants but we had a bit too much grease still coming through and that can basically turn that gravel into kind of black cement ish um, yeah it just turns into a really hard substance that doesn't really flow anymore and then digging it out is such a pain when you get to that level so I would be really careful and work more with biology and the whole gravel filtration systems. Yeah, really only put them in if you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, and fortunately there's some easy options to convert like a five gallon bucket into a grease trap um, that can help out a lot with things like that. But yeah, you do have to be careful about 
saturation of certain types of materials, grease being one of them in these, these smaller systems. And moving out into larger areas of land, I mean, we talk about this most often, you and I, in the context of farms and the challenges that they face, the fact that many of them are reliant on irrigation for the cultivars that they have. And of course, when it comes to animals, getting drinking water out to the paddocks that are being grazed and also grazing in a way that makes the best possible use of the water resources available, making sure that it sinks into the ground, that it cycles through plant life and increases the biomass on the site. What are some of the main techniques that you've seen be effective for people who, especially in these sort of dryland regions and have struggled with water access, have implemented successfully uh, within our community and other examples you've seen? Yeah, I think one of the most important aspects there is looking and observing a lot when it rains. So you need to be out there in, in the rainstorm and you need to seek where does water flow? Uh, where does it infiltrate? Where does it not infiltrate? And that's where you kind of start. So you can see, ah, okay, it's always pooling in this area. So why is that happening? Maybe that's a good spot to build a bit of a bigger infiltration basin. Or if we have some areas where we see a lot of erosion, um, that can be a very simple step of like, okay, how can we stop this erosion um, and get it into the ground? So there are different ways of kind of shaping shaping the soil um, to get water to, to stop eroding and to flow to the areas where we want it and to then store it in place. So there's, there's different techniques for that. Um, but sometimes we don't even need to come in with heavy machinery and we need to not shape the earth because we can also do it through appropriate management. So I think some of the greatest examples we've seen in our kind of immediate um, circle of, of people we work with is the people who apply plant grazing and, and manage grazing uh, operations where they've taken land that is completely degraded, completely yeah, dry and suffering from a lot of drought and flood cycles where through the animal interaction, you can get the soil to infiltrate water when it rains and to then buffer uh, these longer dry periods and to handle also larger rain events. So I think that is always a really good step. Like the first step, see how can we increase infiltration? How can we increase also their water holding capacity of the soil? And then for these really, really heavy rain events, um, when you would still get erosion and kind of above the surface when you get would get flow there, then we can see, okay, how what we need to shape the land. Um, and I think there we've seen great examples of people using different forms of, of terracing. Um, and I guess one of the one of the best strategies there is to look at what kind of roads do you need on the farm and how can you use these roads? Because roads are often designed in a way where they're too steep in the wrong places, they're in the valleys. So when it rains, these roads just become rivers. You get a lot more erosion. Um, and they can become quite quite dangerous and destructive. But you can also use roads where you plan them a little bit better and you see that they're either kind of on contour, but the best we've usually seen is when you slope them a little bit so the road has just a tiny grade to direct water into larger, to larger basins where you can then work with natural dams, natural ponds. Um, and I guess from, from my current understanding, like, that's one of the best approaches you can do. Like, direct water in a kind of zigzag shape throughout the landscape, store it in these strategic um, kind of acupuncture point, points where it makes sense. So you get the subsurface irrigation and always have water flowing a little bit. Because if you have water standing too much in some areas, that might also um, yeah, 
lead to issues. Um, but yeah, I, I would say there's no kind of blanket um, solution like do this one thing and your farm will be great. Uh, that's why everything is so context specific. But it's generally about, okay, how can we infiltrate water? How can we hold it into the soil? And when we have too much rain, how can we then see that we direct it to places where we want it and away from the places where we don't want it so we can then get it into the soil? Um, I guess that's a like the general approach, but it always depends on context. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting how these patterns repeat, but the techniques look different depending on the enterprises that you have on your farm, right? So uh, a grazing or a livestock operation is going to manage this a little bit differently, but it isn't to say that the patterns don't repeat themselves uh, than they would, let's say, with an agroforestry or row cropping operation, right? You have access to different machinery, the way that you're going to have to use techniques to get the best possible yields from your site are going to differ significantly, but the physics of water don't change. It's always going to run perpendicular to contour. It's always going to find the quickest and least resistant way down slope. And, you know, it will fill and adapt its shape and its volume to fit whatever space that it occupies. And depending on the infiltration or the percolation rates of your soil, which depends a whole lot on not only the geology of the site that you're on, but also the compaction, the level of organic matter, the amount of living roots and the vegetation on site, as well as the, you know, evaporative rates of the weather and the climate over time. All of these things come into play to create a unique situation that is going to determine which techniques and which management practices are going to be most effective on any given site. It's been really interesting to work with, directly coach, but also hear stories from the farmers in our network and also from other parts of the world that we're in touch with all the time to hear about what they have had success with, what has been, let's say, oversold, uh, wink, wink, swales. Uh, we'll get more into that in just a second, talking about how the, the subject of water is often oversimplified and poorly thought out, but we'll get back to that in a minute. And how... Um, the the statistics that I just talked about, the, the factors that come into play can really determine whether a management style or a technique is going to be effective or, you know, may make a little difference in a short term, but over the long term, it's going to fail or it's not going to have the effect that you want. Um, and I can go into more specifics, but there's always another one that is going to make a big difference over time. And that is the improvement of the quality of your soil. Ultimately, storing water in soil is the best thing that you could hope to do. And you can do that through water retention features, but you can also do that by improving the tilth, uh, decompacting any areas where it's unable to, to penetrate into the lower areas. Because once it gets underground, it is far less likely that you're going to lose it uh, to, to evaporation, to overheating. And this is what can really kickstart the health of the ecosystem. Again, whether you're you're managing it for a yield or for an end product, or you're trying to bring back biodiversity or reforest, all of these things are going to start with having access to the proper hydration that the plants that you're hoping to promote are going to need to thrive. And with that said, uh, what are some of the techniques and the management methods that you have seen that maybe are lesser known, you know, maybe haven't received as much 
mm, interest or or discussion as let's say building ponds and dams or cutting swales into the landscape but are nonetheless very important to consider i think one of the major elements is looking at okay why does water evaporate or, or leave a landscape again and, and a big aspect is just because the sun is just getting really really hot and just heating the heating the land up and so one of the major things we need to do is okay how can we get soil protection going because a protected soil um, is just much cooler it can save water much much better um, and that is one of the major things we should be looking at um, as a strategy at the beginning um, so this can this can come from from different kind of routes so on the one side what we can definitely do is kind of cover the soil with organic matter so we can see okay different mulch covers all these aspects make sense but also specifically growing plants um, that on the one side provide shade quickly, provide a microclimate quickly to then grow up and provide shade. So what are the kind of trees, but also shrubs, annuals, like what are different plants that we can get established as quickly as possible to provide this canopy, even if it's a low canopy, but how can we grow that? How can we provide the protection that the soil needs? Um, so that then other plants that we that we might want that are more desirable so that they can grow up um, under the protection. And I guess one of the one of the most promising approaches there is the whole like centropic agriculture movement where you also work with the different um, kind of stages of plants where you really start seeding a lot. You, you grow the annuals that can establish really quickly to provide the first layer of protection, then the other layers kind of grow grow in turn. Um, I guess the whole how centropic agriculture works is definitely uh, one, two, three episodes more uh, of your podcast that will take things too far. Um, and also, we're definitely not the best um, about the specifics of it. But um, yeah, the general pattern that people can take away, I think, is can you grow protection quickly? And what people often forget, especially, you know, when they hear about like food forests and all this, and then they go out and buy really expensive plants um, that are then not protected at all that don't have any any cover uh, and that are really suffering from the lack of water but what you should be doing at the beginning is just grow those kind of species that can offer the support that can offer the kind of protection and then slowly you can integrate the ones that are more demanding um, and that need more of that of their protection so that's something people often neglect like just plant things that you might not benefit from directly but that are needed to kind of advance the ecosystem and prevent water from from leaving the soil again. But yeah, this is this is more on the what can we plant as a strategy? Um, what kind of other strategies have you seen that are maybe not so uh, so widely used? Man, well, there's so much talk right now about no-till cultivation, right? Uh, this can happen in row crop operations. This can happen in market gardens. This can happen in agroforestry. And I think it's important to talk about why people till in the first place, besides the obvious ones of, you know, cultivating uh, a favorable soil tilth and conditions to germinate whatever crop they're planting into it. I don't know about other places of the world, but here in Spain, and I'm pretty sure in a lot of other places in the Mediterranean, there's a perception that having any kind of vegetative cover, especially in agroforestry systems, will rob the land of moisture. Um, and there's some logic to this, right? 
any plant is going to need moisture. It's going to be drawing moisture from the soil in order to live. And almost all plants are going to respire a bit of moisture through their leaves in the act of photosynthesis and just how they draw that up from their root systems. Um, so it's not founded on nothing, but it's a very incomplete view about how this works. And you mentioned earlier this concept of planting the rain or planting the water before you get into plants. And it's essential to understand that plants can actually pull extra water up from lower uh, areas of the soil profile, such as the, the water table or even deeper, well, not deeper than the water table, but like, you know, if there's a very deeper water table in the case of larger perennials, uh, deep-rooted trees and such that can make that available uh, in the area around the rhizosphere of their root system. Um, a really interesting <laughs> visualization for this that, that really stuck in my mind is I was installing an electrical system for a cob house in Senegal, and we had to put in the grounding system for the electrical, uh, the electrical system of the house. And it's a matter of putting a large copper uh, stake into the ground so that any extra surge or overflow of energy in the system gets put down into the earth. Well, the only way that this can work and the only way that I can actually conduct electricity through into the ground is if there's some moisture touching this stake. And I mean, we were pretty much at the edge of the Sahara Desert and there was very little vegetation on our site. And there were two ways that people told us that you could put in a grounding stake in the ground in that kind of a climate where there was enough moisture around it that it would actually work effectively. One was to buy in a whole bunch of charcoal, fill about a cubic meter hole of the ground with charcoal and water it thoroughly. That's one way. And the other way was to put in the stake at the base of a tree. To give you an idea of the fact that even in this dry desert climate, any given tree that was of a certain maturity was gonna hold enough moisture around in its roots near to the, to the base that it could you know, conduct electricity through it. And, and that's important. And we've seen this over and over again too. Like there's this thought that if you put trees into cultivated fields, it's going to shade out the crops below. It's gonna rob water from them. And oftentimes the opposite is, the tr is, is what happens, especially in these extreme summers, these long droughts that we're increasingly experiencing within this sphere or this area around the tree roots are where the crops grow the best. And that's even with a little bit of competition from for light. Um, and I mean, this is perfectly evident in mixed or patchy forest systems. You know, there's a lot of visual ways that you can see how this plays out. And so this, this perception that tillage means that you need to get rid of any competition from the primary cultivars. Let's say you don't even have any trees within the system. Uh, first of all, you should consider having them. Second of all, um, even in monoculture uh, cropping systems, having bare soil is going to increase the temperature on that soil surface, causing further evaporation. It's going to, maybe in the beginning when you've just tilled, it's gonna be soft enough that when it rains, it'll start to infiltrate in just because of that tilth. But the tilth is also lacking any root matter. And so it's going to be suspended in water and most likely going to be washed downstream, causing massive erosion. And I see this all over cultivated fields here in, in Spain. When I was out in Italy, it was very evident. You just see these gashes along the landscape, and that's where all your topsoil went. 
Um, and of course, the other thing too is wind erosion. Wind erosion is going to remove any light uh, organic matter that could have held on to the water better and get rid of that off of the surface and make it much harder to hold on to water later into the season. And then of course, after the first rain event, let's say it wasn't too harsh of a rain and it didn't really erode anything off the top. Well, what will happen is the topsoil is going to levigate. Well, levigation means if anybody's done a jar test where you shake up the soil and you watch the substrate settle out, you've got sand and gravel at the bottom, and then you've got silt, and then you get a cap of clay at the top. And unless you're working with absolutely zero clay, uh, it's going to create a little crust over the top that even when it dries out, even if it cracks, is going to prevent water from infiltrating in the future. You've basically put a water barrier on the top of your soil so that the next time it rains, it's going to take all that nice clay right off the top. And increasingly, you're going to be left with uh, sand and gravel and rocks, which is a bummer to try and grow crops on, I can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> so that, that's my spiel on, on tillage. I could go so much deeper into this and the, the cultural practices behind it and the perception of how, you know, maintaining a clean field is more aesthetically pleasing and all of that. But just to dispel some of the misconceptions of keeping a bare field being better for water holding or uh, removing competition for water. It's, it's just not true. It's a very incomplete understanding of how this works. Um, so I guess let's let's move on to one other thing here. So in larger landscapes, you know, we've talked about getting rid of features on the landscape that drain water. Uh, roads, trails, paths can be one of the biggest culprits. And the way that you're cultivating or managing your land obviously plays a huge uh, plays a huge factor into how water is cycled or, or retained, otherwise lost and eroded from your site. Let's look at the biggest scale. Let's look at this on a regional scale. And this is something that we really focused on in the course that I did with Zach and water stories. But you know quite a lot about this too. And the idea of working at this level and the communities and the dynamics that are involved that are necessary to making significant change on a scale that you know, can change local climates. What are some of the tactics and the approaches that you've learned over time? Yeah, I think it's, it kind of helps to look back at why things are designed the way they are designed. And the way I understand it now from, from research is that basically standing water anywhere was an issue back in the day when we didn't really have any uh, hygienic sanitation and everything was just thrown out onto the street. Uh, that's basically how how things were. You just chucked it out. There was there was no sewage system. There was nothing like this. Um, and so that was often the cause of of different kind of diseases, of different outbreaks, and that was a big issue. So early on um, in in settlements and um, and cities, we basically tried to get water away as quickly as possible because it was generally there as an issue um, and it was it was dangerous so everything was designed to get water away as quickly as possible never let it stand anywhere uh, if you can somehow get around that and that's how we designed everything so all the drains all the rain gutters um, all the systems we have installed are there but that is one of the big issues because when we do get heavy rains um, this water then just goes somewhere downstream and in many cases, this can become an issue because at some point 
um, there will be too much for a system and then it will cause immense uh, destruction, immense flooding and all these kind of issues that we're seeing all over the world because, yeah, well, if we just try to get water away as quickly as possible, at some point it's going to go somewhere. Um, so that's what I see as one of the biggest issues where we need to kind of reverse this and look back at like, ah, okay, maybe we need to go from getting water away as quickly as possible because we have increased sanitation and all these things. So it's not really an issue anymore. And we should get to a point of like, okay, how can we infiltrate water as much as possible in place? Because if the water goes into the soil, if it goes into the ground in many, many places, uh, many decentralized places, then it won't cause any problems further down. And this is also related to the kind of flood drought cycle, because if all the water that falls is always just directed away, uh, when it then doesn't rain for quite some time, that water is still gone um, and we don't have it in the soil. So by kind of redesigning landscapes, seeing like, hey, let's stop water from leaving, but actually infiltrate it where we are, infiltrate it in as many places as possible, then it will also be stored in the soil where it can then stay for very long times and if there's a bit of a slope in it it will also move underneath the soil for sometimes even years just on one property the water will move so slowly under the soil which is a major thing so i think kind of kind of bringing it bringing it down what we need to see on large scale big landscapes like okay how can we reverse this trend of getting water away and how can we turn it into how can we keep it longer in places so we don't get these extreme extreme surges um, and yeah also i guess a very big issue is because there's concrete everywhere it also can't infiltrate so what are kind of things we can do to break things open again and have soil and have plants and roots uh, where water can then enter into the soil but yeah it's um that, that's how how i see the main issue i'm not sure if, if you share that or what's your perspective on the on the larger scale systems yeah, I mean, definitely, like you said, so much of our infrastructure, modern infrastructure is designed specifically to get water away as fast as possible. And it goes back quite a ways. We've become extremely good at it, much to our detriment. And we're now in a situation, especially in cities, where water has to be drawn from so far away and sourced completely unsustainably uh, in order to maintain these populations, which are often growing massively at the same time that the resources to keep them afloat are, are dwindling really quickly, which is inevitably going to lead, if it continues this way, to some real humanitarian crises when you've got millions of people in a concentrated area that don't have clean water access. Oh, I'm really glad I don't live in a city any, <laughs> or, or even near one at, at this point. But when we're working at this scale, we have some unique potential, right? Um, and here, I think, would be a good time to talk about groundwater and all the different ways that not only can it be stored, but how it is currently being drawn from, because, well, this is a nuanced thing. So let's try to figure out where we're talking about here. You were mentioning how you can store water in the soil and it can move through a landscape depending on the geology that you have underneath your feet. Uh, very, very slowly, it can be held there for a long time. And this you know, can eventually lead to reestablishing or replenishing groundwater, which is where the the level of, of water kind of reaches a saturation point. This is often what refills wells. It determines how deep you need to dig them. And in some cases, this can even go down into aquifers. Now, when you're talking about replenishing aquifers, 
we're often looking at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years of time that it takes to percolate and meaningfully uh, refill these these underground caves, essentially. Uh, but that's definitely not a reason not to start working on it now, because the way that we are overdrawing these underground resources is staggering. And there seems to be a perception that, you know, we kind of know in the back of our mind that these are finite resources, but in many places around the world, it's not regulated how much you can draw from underground water. There's no metering. There's no cost uh, associated at least with with the quantity of draw that you get from it. Maybe there's a, a, a regulation that says, you know, you need to register this or you need to pay a fee in order to dig one. And it definitely can be expensive. But after that, how much you pump out of it is often not regulated. I know this is the case in many places in the United States, including in some of the driest areas of the desert southwest, which blows my mind that they haven't gotten on that yet. But it's definitely the case here, too, in Spain. Increasingly, they are starting to put on meters and uh, to put limits on how much you can draw from it and put costs on quantities. But this is new. And there is more than a million illegal boreholes in this country alone. So we don't have a grasp on this at all. And we're not talking about, you know, having a small well in people's backyards most of the time. We're talking about like you know, hundreds, if not thousands of hectares of olive or almond plantations in some of the driest parts of the southern region of this country that have no regulations on how much water they can draw from. And a really good way of looking at this is, is making a withdrawal from a bank account. Depending on how much water is under your feet uh, where you are in the world, that's how much buffer you have to help you get through droughts and extreme weather events and 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 a lack of, of water that's needed for a general function. And if we're constantly overdrawing from that bank account without ever putting a deposit back in, in the form of water infiltration into the soil and replenishment of groundwater, it will run out, as will any other bank account. And it's important to know that because we're really just now starting to see some of the extreme examples of what it can look like when these resources are, de are depleted. I know along the coast around Barcelona, many of the aquifers have been overdrawn to the point where the pressure has dropped and it's close enough to the ocean that seawater has started to infiltrate in. And though there was still quite a bit water there, it's now contaminated with seawater and is a desalination issue and can't be used as irrigation anymore because they overdrew it. And this has become a problem in coastal aquifers all over the world. Um, this is just you know one that's, that's close to my backyard here. Um, but that isn't to say that overdrawing from aquifers or from wells all over the place isn't massive as well. And, um, you know, in examples like Rahendra Singh's work in, in, in India, it is possible to replenish these. And within a very reasonable amount of time, but until we start doing it, we're still overdrawing these bank accounts. And it's about time we start to have some respect for the processes and how long it took to fill up that water bank account and use it with some more respect while also figuring out how to deposit at least the amount that we take out, if not much more to ensure a safer future for, for next generations. Um, and, you know, again, these are just some of the things that we need to consider when we're looking at massive scales, regional scales, because this is going to determine the capacity for industry, agriculture, uh, population 
in a in well i mean i want to say like in the future it, this is determining it right now and we're already seeing the effects of what can happen when the water sources that people depend on for their livelihoods for the industries that keep local economies afloat are depleted and so this is this is really pertinent to to right now already i'm trying to think what other main things that we went through i mean you know awareness building is a massive one just the fact that so many people are still not conscious of the risks. Many people don't even know where their water comes from. In fact, I wasn't very clear about it when I was living in an apartment just a couple of months ago. But fortunately, my water, I know exactly where it comes from now because I can walk to the springs that it's sourced from. But it's not always that easy to follow that source. And I think, you know, local education events and awareness events around water and how to care for the sources that that feed your population are a really good way to start a conversation about what could be done to preserve these resources out into the future. I guess I guess those are kind of the main ones that are, are worth mentioning right now. Again, context specific, it depends on the infrastructure that brings the water to where you are and how the catchment area or the source for, of that water is being managed is, is really gonna determine the actions that are available to you. But a big part of this is reestablishing healthy ecosystems that are, you know, part and parcel with infiltration over a landscape. Can you talk a little bit more about how a uh, healthy, intact, robust landscape can start to replenish water resources uh, within a pretty reasonable amount of time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the main things we need to consider is like okay what happens when it rains like that's what we also touched upon um at the beginning of our conversation and that's where we can also interact so there are generally some places where water tends to tends to flow so we often have these kind of slight valleys or sometimes even more extreme valleys so there's always some kind of area on the landscape where water tends to flow pool or at least get concentrated at a certain point and these are the kind of acupuncture points where it makes sense to keep the water longer. Um, and so some of the most amazing examples I've seen is where people really utilize decentralized water holding um, structures or at least infiltration basins. Because there's also this different terminology depending on, um, on what you get to. But the general idea is analyze the landscape, look at it, see, okay, where would it make sense? Where can we store water with the least amount of work? So sometimes in a valley, you know, you have a very um, kind of point where it's um, where the valley is very small. And at that point, if you there put in a natural uh, natural dam, kind of a clay wall, behind that you can store a lot of water with the least amount of dam wall. On other larger larger areas, you would have to build very big walls uh, to kind of keep some water in there to to kind of establish the same kind of pool structure. Um, and I think that's that's the main thing. So what can you build on a landscape where you can do lots of these small kind of interventions, small infiltration basins where you can then get the get the water to stay longer? Uh, one of the important points there is then to also connect these. So what happens in case of heavy rain events so that when one is full, that the water gets then directed throughout the landscape to the next point so that we can infiltrate as much as possible. And there are some examples of, of farms with... Um, I think the largest number of is like over 70 ponds um, that are connected on, on some of these farms. And that's just beautiful. 
because it also eliminates the kind of danger of having one large water body because then if you have millions of liters or at that scale also millions of gallons uh, for people with with that kind of um, measurement system like that can be really dangerous if there's some some mistake or you have too much rain and then a dam wall breaks and you have these gigantic amounts of waters flowing down that can be really destructive but if we split it up into lots of small features um, you can often get even better results because there it slowly infiltrates into the soil so all these features um, I'm speaking about, they never utilize any kind of plastic sheets or any pond liner. So the water can always slowly go into the into the soil where it then moves on. And these landscapes are much more drought resistant also because the, the water is in the soil. Um, that also increases fire resistance. Um, also flood resistance is much lower because the water that comes down, they're designed in a way that they can then infiltrate it or store it. Um, in these different areas. And I guess these kind of systems are incredible, um, specifically for farm systems or when you when you live in a in a situation where you need a lot of water, you never know what happens to your well. It might go dry at some point. And I mean, we can keep drilling, but as you mentioned earlier, that bank account of water that we have, at some point it's depleted. And yeah, if you only start thinking about what to do, once that happens, it might be too late. Like if you have a large herd of animals relying on, on a water source or if you have other crops, like if your water runs out, that's a really serious issue. Um, and that's why I think it's so crucial to start now with working on these decentralized water features. Like how can you build the resilience so that you don't depend on any, any groundwater that's uh, that you need to pump up from deep down or you're connected to any... Um, any systems uh, or any any water systems that at some point you know they might stop flowing because someone decides uh, water is now limited. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stories also coming from I think the the latest were in California, where now you know at some point you're not allowed to irrigate anymore, and then it goes down and down and down, and at some point you know maybe the water stops completely. So what can you do now to build that water resilience? Um, I guess that's one of the most important things we should be doing because then you don't mind. You know, if it rains, you can get to a point where you're happy because every rain will fill up your um, your deposits. And if your other connections fail, it doesn't matter because you have decentralized water bodies and some of them will very likely keep some of the water or it will be in the soil and your plants can get to it. Um, so I get that's, that's one of the most important things we need to be doing. And we should be doing it now and not when it's too late and we're already dry and it's kind of too late. Yeah, and certainly the machinery that can make this possible at a medium to larger scale is not going to be this cheap any any time in the future. So like it's expensive now, it's going to get really expensive. And so, you know, while we have this technology, while we still have access to artificially cheap fossil fuels, we can leverage it to start to repair so much of the damage that's happened over centuries of mismanagement of landscapes from humans. But I also want to touch on some of the many options that are available to people who either are daunted by the technical know-how required to do water retention features well. And, you know, even on a small scale, it might not be the passion for other people, but there are a lot of uh, opportunities available to hold water on a landscape without having to dig up a pond or create a wetland or a retention basin. I mean, I think now it's become 
pretty common for people to have heard the, the Yellowstone reintroduction of wolves story, where bringing in a keystone predator actually changed the flow of the rivers in that park by influencing the behavior of the macro fauna in the form of elk and deer that would overgraze the riparian zones and you know also reintroduction of species such as beavers which have been hunted and cleared out pretty much to extinction in many parts of Europe in the United States um, those have been keystone species for the proliferation of so many uh, life forms in the food web of the ecosystems where they're present. I and mean, this was something that we talked about in the course in, in Italy and seeing the changes after a reintroduction event along a waterway in Tuscany is, is incredible. They create, you know, little natural dams that are not permanent, but can start to hold water higher on a landscape, spread it out into a floodplain, reverse the effect of incised channels, which is uh, an indication of unhealthy waterways where they just cut in deeper and can no longer flood their banks. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, yeah, revegetation, of course. It's one of the reasons why I focused on tree planting events. And more important than tree planting, actually tree growing, because it's very easy to just wang a tree into the ground and walk away. And that's the reason why so many of the tree planting efforts get a bad rap, because they actually don't have any follow through and pay attention or do the research required to know which species are appropriate to the landscape that they're planting on. Um, but there are very good ways to do this. And then it is an extremely powerful way to work with landscapes that should, well, should is a, is a strange word. Again, context specific, but there are so many places, especially here in Europe, where mixed forestry is one of the highest successional stages that you could hope to reach for a maximum of uh, life capacity within an area and vegetation is a huge element of that uh yeah so I, I really encourage people to look into all of the options available especially before they start thinking that the only way to hold water on a landscape is to go in and do a big uh landscape feature like a dam or a pond there are many other options that you can try and fail very risk-free with and I would not go ahead and start introducing wolves everywhere, as cool as that would be to hear the stories and see the pictures. Uh, that's something you want to leave up <laughs> to some experts. Uh, same with reintroduction of any species. You want to be very careful about when, how, and who you collaborate with in doing that, because there are plenty of stories of that being completely mismanaged and causing you know, species die-off and invasive introduction in places around the world. So you know that's not for amateurs. But uh erosion control methods beaver analog dams there there's some really cool options available before you have to dig deep into your pockets find the money and pull out some big machinery um but on the topic of earthworks let's dig into the reason why some of these things get a bad rap and the due diligence that is often not done and the fame that certain features have gotten because of the way that they've been promoted when the truth is that they're not usually appropriate for the for the context that they've been installed on. Do you want to take the topic of swales first and then and then we'll we'll go from there? Um yeah, sure. So for for those people who might not have heard the word swale, I guess it's it's very used uh, and used widely. It's basically like a ditch on contour. So you can imagine it's 
kind of like a swimming pool that's kind of shallow and very, very long. So some of these can be up to a few kilometers. And the general idea is that water that comes from further uphill gets stored in them. Um, and then they can slowly fill up until they overflow at a, at a certain point. And they can be an absolutely fantastic tree growing system. So what is often done is that you have the kind of swell. So it's a kind of a ditch uh, that you have on contour. And then you have the berm kind of down uh, downhill from that. And then that you would plant with lots of different trees and all these systems. So as a tree growing system, um, they can be really great. But it somehow seems like because they're also so simple to do, it's so easy to kind of get a contour line with, with an A-frame or water level or laser or whatever you have, have available. Um, they tend to be overused because sometimes it's just not the right context for them. So there's a lot of landscape designs that we're seeing where you just have random swales going through the landscape and the issue is because you do them on contour and the contours are not perfectly level uh, or parallel to each other um, that just creates a design that's really difficult to navigate and it's just not handy for management Um, also the issue is when they fill up um, a lot you might have some issues because oftentimes they are also used in a way where the swale is then also a road or an access feature but then when you get heavy rains and then there's half a meter, uh, what's that, like one and a half foot, I think, uh, of water in them, like you're not really going to use that that road uh, <laughs> while it's raining. And that's one of the most important times often to be around and to see how, how everything's working. So there are some pitfalls of just putting these in randomly without considering the context. And so oftentimes, you know, it makes sense putting in... Um, a little bit of an inclination towards one side because oftentimes we want to get the water to a certain part of the property. Maybe there is an infiltration basin or something, or we can also just work with a kind of zigzag pattern throughout the landscape. So quite often there's slight variations that might make more sense um, because there can also be issues if if you really fill the swale up um, and you always need to have a spillway. So basically when it gets too much water um, that it can overflow but if they're not sized appropriately, they can also lead to a large issue if suddenly they break um, and you get a lot of water flow over the land. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, also from my background, the first thing I got in contact with in the whole regeneration movement was definitely permaculture. And there's so many incredible approaches. There's so many great principles. I really love it. But yeah, it is, it is a bit um, dangerous, I guess. Yeah. The, over swalification of of landscapes uh, when they're appropriate they can be great but we need to be a bit careful um yeah how, how have you experienced that how have you seen that in in your past yeah there's just a lot of important questions that you need to ask before you come to the conclusion that the best way to hold water on your landscape is with contour ditches or swales one of the main things to note is the slope of your land um, swales are really only safe within about five to 15 degrees of slope. And beyond them, if it's if it's steeper than that, then it can burst and can pick up a lot of kinetic energy with that amount of water and do damage down below, cause worse erosion than in the beginning, especially if this proper spillway is not put in. And below five degrees, there's much more cost-effective and possibly effective ways of infiltrating water by holding it in the soil, oftentimes with uh, subsoiling, which can also be done on contour effectively. But it's worth knowing that though 
key line ripping is sold as this great way of spreading water out into uh, a contoured landscape. Oftentimes it doesn't run as far out into the ridges and ends up going down um, faster from, from the valleys than, than is expected. And this of course is gonna be dependent entirely on the type of geology that you're talking about. And I've said that a couple of times, what I'm talking about is what concentration, compaction, infiltration rates or clay percentages that you have in the subsoil below you. And, you know, if you hit rock, well, that's a pretty impermeable layer, depending on if it's something like pumice or, or filtration rock, like uh, volcanic rock, or if it's got some serious cracks in it, like certain formations of basalt or granite. Uh, that's kind of what we have where my farm is. And if the water finds these cracks, it can find a path down to go in really deep. And then around the edges on the outside, it can shear off and you get some weird behaviors. And it's important to know what kind of earth you're on top of, especially if you're going to start digging. Um, the other thing about swales is, you know, people often don't do um, uh, cuts to figure out what the subsoil looks like. And I've heard stories of both cutting through a very absorptive layer of clay and tapping into something like gravel or sand underneath. And you actually just end up losing all of your water down into the lower levels of the soil where it's less accessible than you would have if you had not dug that out in the first place. And the opposite can be true. You can have a very impermeable layer of clay and just end up holding these stagnant ponds that don't move and don't infiltrate very well and start to just breed mosquitoes and become these swampy areas that collect all of the water in very small strips of your land instead of more evenly distributing it around, let's say, a pasture, which you know, maybe you'll get some good growth around there, but you'll quickly get an overgrowth of bushes, shrubs, and trees, which are not the best fodder for, let's say, cattle or pigs. And, you know, this is, again, why knowing your geology whenever you're going to start to dig is super important. Um, have you heard about the stories of hugel swales and the logic that gets to that, but the <laughs> also the dangers that come along with it? Have you heard about this one? Yeah, absolutely. So basically in a in a hugel culture, what you would do there is that you kind of pile up different kind of logs. So you have a, have a base of, of larger logs and then you have some, some smaller branches or twigs on top, some biomass, and then you put soil over the top, uh, which can be a great growing feature uh, depending on your context uh, or on the temperate zones. If it gets too hot, uh, they can also just lead to drying out too quickly, but that's a whole Different story. Um, basically, they, they can be a great feature to grow plants. Um, but some people got the idea is like, hey, this is kind of like a nice shape. Um, why not put these on contour and then use them as a swale? So then the idea would be like, okay, we combine the best of both worlds. So we have a Google culture to grow. Um, and then we also have the swale feature to store water. The big issue is, though, that because there's all this kind of wood and decomposing material inside of them, it's very easy for water to find a tiny little path, uh, like to find the way through the wall. And then you get a tiny trickle at some point where it gets through. And um, as you've probably observed, um, if you ever interacted with water, a tiny trickle uh, can quickly turn into a large trickle. And then the whole structure breaks, um, which is such a pain in the 
you know. So it's it's really not something you want to get to because then also the issue is if you have a normal swale, which is decompacted or like not compacted soil, fixing it is also quite simple. But there it's also a big issue because then it's full of all these logs of these twigs. So getting that fixed again is a big issue and it is definitely a safety concern because also if you have a lot of water suddenly flowing downhill and it's taking these logs with it, water in itself can already be dangerous uh, if it's fast enough and coming with enough force. Uh, if it then also carries a lot of logs, uh, that can really make some damage. So yeah, it's one of these things where in theory it looks good, in the books it looks great, but then when you apply it outside of an appropriate context, that can really wreak havoc. Yeah, I mean, I even heard of a more extreme uh, failure of one of these. It didn't actually get through the base of the the Hugel culture bed, and and start the trickle. What happened was it held enough water back behind it, and the water was saturated that it became buoyant. It actually just uprooted and floated all at once, and lost all of it its water before it even started to slow erode. And uh, fortunately, there was a building below and <laughs> did some serious damage. So, you know, again, it, a lot of these things are cool in theory. They can have an appropriate application, but always know what it is you're working with. Know the objectives, know the risks and size your systems and put in the safety features necessary to make sure that when inevitably something that you did not expect or foresee happens, that there are some protections, some redundancies, and some safety features to make sure that something catastrophic doesn't happen. Because that does start to give a bad reputation for these types of efforts that can hinder the projects that other people after you may want to do. I think that's also something to consider, especially because this is often very innovative work, depending on where in the world that you're getting these projects off the ground creating a good association, um, best practices, especially if you're doing this at any scale, is really important to pave the way to make this easier and more likely to be approved, both from community and, and social perspectives, as well as regulatory and government perspectives in the future. And um, so at this point, man, we've gone through a lot <laughs> of examples, context, materials, uh, management styles, techniques, and there's still so much more that we could talk about and so much more detail in all of these things that we could explain. And in fact, we will uh, in future episodes, we will definitely have some conversations directly with practitioners, with farmers that we talk with that have incredible stories about how implementing these types of features and changing their understanding of working with water has transformed the way that their their farm and their businesses function. But that's for another time. I think a good place to go into now would be to talk about how we can be of help to those of you listening who would like to know more about this to accelerate your learning journeys and maybe even have some direct assistance on some projects and some advice or experience on what you might be thinking of doing. Nick, how are we working with other people to help them to manage water better on their properties? Yeah, I think one of the, um, let's say, things I'm most grateful for is that through our work with climate farmers, but also through your continuous work with the podcast, we have the ability to uh, stand on the shoulders of, of uh, gigantic uh, water giants. Um, 
which which is really great. Um, and so this is this is one of the aspects where we had the pleasure of learning um, from the best of the best. We're in regular contact with them, which is such an important aspect in all of this work. Like um, if you if you're getting into it, there are so many things you can do, and there are basically as many things. Uh, you can't do wrong. So it's really crucial to have this kind of network and the reliance of okay, who are the right people, who are the appropriate people for different projects, uh, what's the right size to work. And and I think that's that's a major thing um, that I'm really grateful that we have this network that we rely on because it's it's so important to support people and to pick them up where they are uh, because many of these systems, as we've talked about before, like it's kind of simple to put them in but it's really difficult to put them in right and to put in the appropriate safety features and if you don't do it right that can really do a lot of damage not just financially but yeah it, it can even be a big health and safety um, concern so that's that's one of the very important disclaimers they like always just work with people who who know what they're doing um, and I mean for the two of us um, even though we've been in this for many years, um, I would still definitely consider myself um, as a beginner in this because it's a lifelong journey. And uh, yeah, but we can rely on all these giants uh, that we interact with constantly to to build the bigger projects. And I guess for us, the important aspect in this is also that we want to work with people and pick them up where they come from. So we often get very similar questions. Um, increasingly now we get farmers and landowners who say like, hey, um, I think my water management is not quite how it should be or it could be improved. Like, what, how, can I, how can I do this? And I think there the, the great part is picking them up, figuring out okay, what is it exactly that is needed on your landscape? What fits your context? Uh, what, what is your context, first of all? Like, what makes sense on your farm? Um, what do you want as a landowner? What is appropriate? What is the kind of budget that is available so it's very important at the beginning to figure out what makes sense to then go into a further direction because quite often people just have an idea of like, okay, I need a lake here and then a pond there and those need to be the spots and just do it. Uh, but often that can be quite problematic. Um, and I think that's that's one of the strong points because we've worked with so many different farmers and landowners in different contexts that that is one of the things um, where we really start like picking up what is what is context specific, what makes sense for you on the ground, and where can we go from there, and who are the people uh, we need to get on board to to make it happen. So I guess that's one of the most important first steps. Um, but yeah, we don't finish with the first steps, so maybe you want to go a bit more into into how this journey can look like. Yeah, just like you were saying, when it comes to working smart and safely with water. There are a ton of options that uh, I love coaching people to do on their own. It is often very empowering just to see what some small changes in management or a couple approachable techniques that they can do in an afternoon can get people excited about the potential of. Because like you said, you know, other uh, aside from trying to sequester carbon, which can take years and years, and the results on a smaller piece of land are negligible, um, when you work with water, you can see changes very quickly and it's inspiring. Um, but depending on how much you know about what is possible, many people will come to us thinking, you know, I, I just need to improve my irrigation system. And a big part of my favorite part of this work is 
helping others to understand what the potential on their site is. Like if everything was done well over a couple of years, what could you really experience? How could this change the way your farm looks? How could it change the way your business operates? What would it do for your own satisfaction, your income, your lifestyle? Because it really affects all of these elements and helping others to discover the potential of what could happen through proper water management on their site is something that I really love to work with people on because ideas, possibilities are uncovered in this that that just, you know, they're hidden until you you start to work with them. Um, but despite that sounding like kind of this wishy-washy dream pie in the sky kind of thing, it's all grounded on what is necessary and practical uh, that you can take on yourself that's that fits within your budget, that is appropriate for your business, all the things that Nick was talking about uh, with context. And we really do stay grounded with, you know, these journeys because, it's very easy to get overexcited and, and then later overwhelmed by trying to take on too many things or uh, getting into projects that rack up a huge <laughs> bill and then getting into debt. And this is the last thing that you want. And it's one of the, the main reasons to work with someone with experience and knowledge on to avoid those types of mistakes that can start to sink you. Um, and then, you know, ultimately we then, you know, after getting the scope of what could happen on a master plan over a couple of years, if everything gets implemented, then it's a matter of breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. What can you take on this year? What can you do right now? Or what is the smallest intervention that you can assume that will have the biggest outcome for you know the availability of water and the replenishment of that resource uh, as soon as possible? Because building on success can really keep people motivated and on this longer journey of realizing that potential. Whereas if you jump right in and start doing big water features and sink tons of money into it, and then uh, maybe it wasn't the best choice at the beginning and didn't have the big impact that you were hoping for that was going to transform your business can also be very discouraging and can uh, disincentivize people from seeing through all of the longer term techniques and and management practices that are required to see this be transformative over the long term. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's somewhat a nutshell of how we work with with others and also, you know, the educational resources that we're increasingly putting out, the workshops that we've got planned later this year. Nick, uh, why don't you tell us uh, about the the cool opportunities that are coming up actually really quickly? What are, what are we doing later this year and how can people get involved? Yeah, we're still very much in the in the planning phase, but at the moment it really looks like uh, very likely we will have some events in, in March in Portugal because um, we have the, the big pleasure of being uh, friends with quite a few farmers uh, in the area. And yeah, for a long time we've planned to, to go to the farm to see what's possible, what can we do on the land. Um, so there we have some ideas of... of um, yeah, working on the land, it can can very likely be some kinds of workshops uh, that we have planned. Um, we might also return to to Italy, uh, which is another plan where you've just been with with uh, Zach Weiss um, on the course. Yeah, so we have some increasingly likely. Yeah, uh, maybe late March, sometime in April is likely. Yeah, yeah, I guess that that's a that's a great opportunity. We also. Have some possibility for for events maybe possibly in France uh, in spring or the fall 
Um, also, we have some things planned in Spain, likely in summer, also in Germany. So we have quite a few places in, in Europe where, where we're planning events. Nothing set in stone yet. Um, but this is also something where we want to kind of hear also from people like what is most interesting to you like what are the kind of events you would like to go to because either we work with clients there that, that we're already um, that we're already planning now but i mean knowledge is such a waste if it's not shared um, so we're very open to also hosting more events there bringing more people on with different kind of skill set with um, yeah from from different backgrounds and i think that's for me at least one of the most interesting parts in all of this is working together on projects with different people and to learn from each other learn on the ground uh, get our hands dirty and yeah i mean just playing with water and mud is such a fantastic way of spending time <laughs> uh yeah i love that i think you're being a little bit overly cautious i mean these events are definitely going to happen the only thing we don't have for is dates and, and confirmed locations yet uh, we're just working on the details and there's a lot of ways to follow us to make sure that you're informed when we do have the details ready. Uh, like we said, there's definitely going to be a couple of locations in the spring between March and May. And we'll post all of these on Instagram and on my website as soon as they're available. And it's important to know that these are not, you know, sit down lecture style workshops that we're going to be doing these are going to be on farm on site where we're actually putting in small features we're not going to do any major earthworks but some erosion prevention probably some planting events uh reading the landscape marking out contours a lot of these basics that are really important skills that will enable you to go and start making your own experiments and small water retention landscapes right away um, all of our focus is on practical skills that you can uh, take and start working with immediately and start your own learning journey because that's really the only way you're going to gain the confidence to start to scale this up and to create the landscapes the the impact that you that you dream of doing and the beautiful thing is that none of this is so complicated that regardless of you know what training or experience you do or do not have from the past this is very approachable and that was one of the main things that got me inspired to to go into this more professionally is the accessibility of it and just how powerful it is to get a lot of small retention landscapes and rain gardens and um and you know reforestation projects even you know just like we were talking about the, the power of this decentralized effect we don't need more massive hydroelectric dams that store huge reservoirs worth of water we need everybody who has access to a public park or um, the green space on the side of a parking lot or their own backyard to do a little something that cleans the water, holds it in the ground, helps to infiltrate it, prevents it from running off or eroding something everywhere. You know, it's it's the cumulative effect that's going to be powerful here. And, uh, you know, like we're talking about, we're going to have these live events. Those are definitely going to happen. It's just a matter of, of publishing the details. But we're also just now starting to chip away at making this information available online, too. And this is going to complement some of the resources that I've been developing for a while, such as uh, designing and developing agroforestry systems, how to move through farm uh, regenerative farm transition journeys, which we're working with climate farmers to develop for the European context, um, different tests and uh, monitoring systems that require almost no money and no complex technology to understand the progress and the health of your landscape as you start to work with these experiments. I mean, 
this is stuff that I've been looking forward to making available for a long time. And uh, collaborating with Nick is a big part of what has made me confident that this is really going to happen this year and it's going to go public. So, um, yeah, this is all stuff I'm super excited about and looking forward to. Let's see, Nick. So we're definitely going to plan for a couple more podcasts in the upcoming season. And some of these are going to focus around the experiments and the workshops that we've got coming up. And others are just going to dive really deep into specific aspects. But like you were saying earlier, if any of you listening want to hear more in detail about any of the things that we talked about, if you'd like us to do a whole episode deep dive, just let us know. I think the best way to communicate with us directly is either through our Instagram accounts or through the Discord server, where, I mean, it's really the easiest way to get in touch with me on short notice because emails pile up. Uh, Nick, what is one of the best ways for people to reach you and to find out more and, you know, help to guide the resources that we're making right now? Yeah, I guess if you want to get directly in contact with me, one of the best ways is, is either through LinkedIn, uh, where you can find me at Nick Steiner pretty, pretty easy. Or if you look for climate farmers, um, yeah, I won't, I won't be far away. You can, you can easily find that, but we can also put it in the, in the show notes. Um, or on Instagram, um, or the other platforms uh, as Permanent. Um, yeah, always interested in setting up permanent systems that then work and we don't require a lot of maintenance. So you can also find me there, also in the show notes. Um, also through, yeah, just through Oliver, we interact daily. So if you reach out to him, you'll definitely get to me as well. So it's a very simple process of getting in touch with us. Excellent. And if anybody is already starting with or planning a project or is just looking for some guidance and someone to help them to develop this vision for the potential that they have on their landscape, uh, we've also got simple contact and onboarding forms on the website at regenerativeskills.com. And if you are actively farming anywhere in Europe, not even just within the EU, you can sign up for free to be part of our community at Climate Farmers, where you can get in touch with me and Nick for this type of water work and transition journeys for regenerative farming. And we've also got a huge database of coaches from all over Europe, all around the world, in fact, who can help you with very specific things that you're working on, help to unblock or find solutions for, for your farm and you know level up your business in, in a whole number of different ways. And the easiest way to find us there is on climatefarmers.org. And there's a whole tab at the top there for farmers with the list of the services and the opportunities, many of which are completely free to get started with. So, you know, that's another great way to interact with Nick and I who help to manage that community and the, the coach matching process. Whew, man, <laughs> this, we, we really nerded out here. This is super fun. I can't wait to do the next one of these. That way, you and I just don't have a conversation which sounds exactly like this, but with nobody listening. <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, this is it. This is one of the last episodes for the year. After this, there's the Christmas holidays. And there's going to be one more episode of Regenerative Skills here on this the end of the sixth season. And just to get you a little excited, uh, I'm going to be presenting the new farm project that I just moved into about three weeks ago. I've been kind of tight-lipped about it because there has been a lot of things up in the air that I was not sure that were going to come through, but I finally moved in. And if anybody has been curious, 
I'm also going to have this conversation with my dear partner, Alba, who has never appeared on a podcast before and is very nervous to speak English, but it's going to be super fun. And we're going to present the details of moving into our dream home here. So that's something to look forward to as a little signing off for the new year. But until next week, uh, Nick, man, thanks for making time. It's always a blast chatting with you and nerding out about water. And I really look forward to probably talking to you again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been such a pleasure. I, I just looked at the time. I uh, can't believe. Uh, yeah, it just flew past. Um, as you can probably tell, we love speaking and working with water. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, water is just, wow. <laughs> it's the biggest passion. And yeah, yeah if, you, if you need any kind of... Uh, inspiration or support related to water please feel free to reach out as you can probably tell we can't stop speaking about water yeah excellent all right well let's leave it there because we did go really deep into the time and i'll catch you guys on the next episode all the links for the things that we've talked about including the contact forms how to get in touch with climate farmers all of that is going to be in the show notes for this episode and yeah take it easy guys hopefully we'll interact with all of you and geek out about water together soon Take care. Bye-bye. All right, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of this show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, then it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, so that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.